Well, I am sure that you are all as excited as I am to have another Sunday of Angry James. I'm All the conversations out in the lobby, the questions on the drive here must have been around, what name is James going to call us today? And we've been working through this letter together. So James writes to a group of people, people who are Christians, people who have seen what God has done for them. They know the word of God, but they don't do it. That they've seen God's love so clearly poured out for them, but they don't extend that love towards others. They've seen who God is and what he has done, but they don't live a life that's in response to that. And we have shared how we too might live in such a way. We too might uh, get to see who this God is, but we turn instead to the passions that are at war within us. We instead think that we know what's best for our life. We try to be God over our life, that we turn away from this God who's so good, so loving towards these other things instead. And this might make us a little bit defensive. Man, every single week, this guy keeps calling me another name. Every single week, just making me feel like I'm the worst person that there is. But none of that is what, the, well, what James' point is in this. That James without the cross, James without the work of Jesus, yes, it is cruel, it is harsh, it is hard to live to that standard. But because of what we've seen Jesus do, because we have seen his love poured out for, uh, for us, because he has taken this punishment that should have been ours, we turn to him to live in the way that he has for us that's good and for our joy, that's better than anything else that we can try to produce. And so James uses this language to remind us that as we are turning away from God, we're doing so to lesser things, to things that are not as good for us, the things that are worse than what we can produce. So James isn't writing to tell us that we're all awful, but to show us how God is so good and then show us that we're all awful. No, that's not it at all. But it's uh, to remind us that God's way is better, that it's better than anything that we could produce, that it's good and for our joy. Last week, we left off on what do we do in those times that we turn away from God to these other things, and we're called to repent. And the start of repentance is humility, of submitting to God. It is recognizing that he is good, he's exalted, he is holy, he is pure. And so we come before him recognizing our lowness. Now, humility is not bad-mouthing ourselves, like I am nothing, I am trash, I am worthless. That's not humility. That's actually a form of pride, of arrogance. Humility is instead of recognizing God's position and defining ourselves, our ways, all that we have, our possessions according to him as he does so. Now, today we're going to talk about what is the opposite of that. James has been building up to this, and we'll see it in his letter. So if you want to turn with me in your scripture journals, uh, we're flipping between a few pages today. Sorry about how it's laid out, but if you want to turn with me to page 20 of your scripture journals or to uh, James 4 in verse uh, 16, we'll see this. So James has been talking a lot about uh, humility Uh, and how we are called to do that. So, already gone. Uh, So, uh, James has been uh, calling us towards humility. And what is the opposite of that? Well, it's in verse 16. It is our arrogance that we can have. Arrogance is the opposite 
of humility. Arrogance is, is uh, sometimes very obvious. Maybe we're thinking of, of people that are very arrogant. They're boisterous. They're loud. They're, they're drawing attention to themselves. But arrogance can also be very subtle as well. That any time that we're defining our lives, our possessions, our uh, actions, our words, the direction of our heart in opposition to God in any other way than how God defines them, well, that is a form of arrogance. And that's the opposite of humility. That is the opposite of recognizing our position before God. And so James today is going to show us how God's way is better for us uh, through two ways that we might be arrogant with uh, how we might be arrogant. And, and the first way, we can be arrogant with the lives of others, and we can be arrogant with our life as well. And so arrogant with the lives of others and arrogant with our life as well. So we'll, we'll start it in James 4, verse 11. So Isaac, if we could go to that first slide, that's great. So uh, James 4, 11 says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, then you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. Now, there is one lawgiver and judge, and he is able, uh, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? So a, a lot of repeated words in here, and so that might get a little confusing. So, so let's look at what James is talking about. James is drawing a connection between those who speak evil, in verse 11, if you want to underline that, those who speak evil against one another, and those who judges his brother. You could also underline that. So James is drawing this connection between those who speak evil and those who judge. What? James is talking about the power of the tongue, the importance of what we say. Who would have thought he would do that? Yeah, this has been such an important topic to James. He, he keeps bringing it up time and time again. And each, each time that James does, he helps us see that our words are more impactful than just what we say that it's not as though we say a sentence and it floats out there and then it disappears and, and that's all that, uh, that it is. But our words are doing more than just what we say. And he's given us so many reasons for that. It reveals the content of our hearts, that it, it causes hurts and pains and we can see those as well. But, but he keeps showing us that our words are more impactful than we realize. And he gives a couple ways here as well, that the one who speaks evil, uh, maybe we can try to explain what this is. Another word could be slander, or another word could be cutting people down, or, or let's just go really simple with our definition. One who speaks evil, one who is mean with their words on purpose. So when we are mean with our words on purpose, we're doing a couple of things. Well, for one, we are going against the law, speaks evil against the law. This is because God calls us to live in such a way, like love your neighbor. It's hard to love your neighbor when we're being mean with our words on purpose. So our words have more of an impact than we realize. We're going against what God calls us to do with our words. But also, we are giving into our arrogance with the lives of others because we are judging with our words. This is what it means. So when I'm mean with my words on purpose, I'm assessing you to some standard that I am setting and it's saying that you fall short of it. And so what I'm doing is I'm judging you with my words. And this is arrogance because I'm holding you to some standard that I myself am setting. You are not to the level that I think you should be. I am a judge here. And this is arrogance, is it not? 
I am holding you to this standard. I get to say what is right. I get to say what is good. And you are not it right now. So we can be arrogant with our lives when we judge other people with our words, when we speak evil against them. Now, this is a problem because we don't make very good judges. And there's a couple of reasons for this. One of, one of the uh, is given to us here in this passage. Uh, we don't make very good judges because we are not God. We're not all-knowing, all-seeing, all-present. Uh, all uh, we're, we're, not, we're not like God is, and so we don't make very good ju- uh, judges. We're not able to see the content of someone's heart. This is what it talks about here. There is one lawgiver and judge, and you and I, we ain't it that God can see all of this. God can assess uh, the content of someone's heart so he can give right rulings where you and I, we don't have that ability. And, and we, can, we can see this, right? There, we all have those times where we've, we've judged someone, we've, we've assessed someone, and, and then we find out later that there's more to the story or we didn't get the full picture of it. No, just, just me, that's only a problem for me. Well, fine, we'll go down the rabbit trail of how Zach gets to be uh, awful at everything again. So uh, Emily and I came back from a trip not that long ago, and we found ourselves in this godlin, uh, godless forsaken land that where there was anarchy and pain, there was no joy or prosperity or justice, uh, that you look around trying to find someone who would be a friend, someone who would be on your side, but all you see around you are enemies. I'm, of course, talking about the, the pickup area of DIA. <laughs> so in the pickup area, there are signs clearly posted throughout that there is no parking in the pickup area. Your job is to drive there when someone is available to be picked up, pick them up, and then go away. But because no one is policing this area, because the cell phone lot is incredibly inconvenient, and because we're all fallen, broken people, uh, that's not how people treat the pickup area. Instead, they park, which causes more people to park, and back all the way up to where people cannot drive in to pick up those who are already ready to be picked up, because these people are here just waiting, just waiting on their phones until the person that they're here for finally comes out and it just makes the entire thing a mess. And so there was Emily and I, ready and waiting to be picked up. And where was the car picking us up? Stuck in a line back over there, because all these people are parking. There are places for parking. This is not it. It is for picking up. And no, I'm not upset about it. You are. <laughs> and then I saw this car, this white SUV, pull up like the rest of them, park, turn off his ignition. But then he went even further. He gets out of his car, leaving it parked there, leaving it where you're not supposed to park to start walking into the building. What an absolute jerk. Until I saw that his passenger was ready and waiting, and he needed to get out of his car to help her get out of the wheelchair and into his vehicle. What an absolute jerk, I thought again, but this time about myself. Uh, We make poor judges. We don't have the whole story. We're not able to see the content of someone's heart. And so when we assess someone by a standard, we are being arrogant in that way because we make poor judges. We, we make poor judges because we're not willing to extend the mercy that we have received. James talked about this back in chapter 2, verse 13, that God has been so gracious and loving towards us. And as a judge, we don't extend that to other people. 
We make poor judges because we fall short of our own standard. We have really good vision in seeing other people's mistakes, not so good vision about seeing ours. And so when we're judging people, we're not even holding ourselves to the same standard that we're holding others at times. And we make poor judges because we can't even control our lives. We're assessing other people, and yet there's so much that's outside of our control. And we'll see that in the second half of our passage today as well. When we are mean with our words on purpose, we are assessing someone by a standard that we are saying that we get to make. You are falling short of what I think you should be doing, and that's arrogance with the lives of others. And this is judging people, and we see time and time again that we make poor judges. So we get there in verse 12, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, there's a part of me, the, the moody, really self-involved, uh, no one gets me, but I'm awesome, uh, like early high school part of me that still continues to this day. That, that part of it looks at this and is like, yeah, who are you to judge? Who are you to say anything? You're just as broken as I am. But we need to remember the context of this passage. It's all about arrogance. How might we be arrogant? How might we be arrogant with the lives of others? It's not saying that there is no place for judging, of assessing, of, of making judge, uh, judgments or decisions based off of things. That, that's not what it's saying. In fact, there are appropriate places. There are required places where the Bible calls us to judge. If I claim to be a Christian and you see me living in a way that clearly goes against what the Bible tells me to do, you better judge me on that. You better hold me accountable. You better critique me on that so that I can be redirected towards God. James just called people uh, arrogant here. He called them adulterers. There is language to call people to it. There is an appropriateness to judging. But by God's standard, by what he calls us to do, but when we are mean with our words on purpose, when we speak evil about people, when we assess people to a standard that we set, that we think we get to impose on people, that's arrogance with the lives of others. We talked about how we try to be God over our own life, that I think I know what's best for me. I can control things. I can, I can do all this for my life, but this is trying to be God over the lives of other people. And what other word than that is there other than arrogance. So we are called to come before this God in humility. He is exalted. He is high. He has given us every good and perfect thing, and yet we instead can choose to live in a way that's defined by arrogance, and we can be arrogant with the lives of others, judging them by a standard that we feel we get to set. But we can also be arrogant with our own lives, Look at verse 13 and on. It says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such uh, boasting is evil. So what, uh, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. We can be arrogant with the lives of others, and here it's on arrogance uh, for our own lives as well. If we go back to the start of this in verse 13, it shows us a couple different places where we might think that we are in more control than we realize uh, it says, uh, you who, so there's two ways of speaking here. You who say, so what is it that's being said? People think that they're in control of when they can do something. It, it says today or tomorrow. 
So we might think that we're in control of when we can do things in our lives, uh, of where we will do things. So today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town. We, we think that we're in control of, of where we might go, uh, how long we would do something, spend a year. The second part of it, how successful we will be, make a profit, what it is that we will do. It says to trade. So we, we have arrogance for our life when we think that we have any sort of control or that we can force the outcome of when we do things, where we will do things, how long and how successful, and what it is that we will do. That there is so much that's outside of our control that when we think that we have some sort of way to force an outcome or we think that we have more control over it than we do, well, that is arrogance over our own lives. And, and, and we might say that we get this. Like, like the second half of this verse, it's, it's a famous part. What is our life? It is missed. It is fragile. It's here today, gone tomorrow. Uh, it, we, we might say these words, but I, I don't think that we actually believe these. I don't think that we actually realize the fragility of our life. Like, yeah, I, I might get in a car crash on the drive home today. I might, while on stage, have an aneurysm that I didn't plan on. Be weird if you planned on that. And yet, I don't live in a way that anticipates these things or thinks of them as a potential. And why is that? Well, it didn't happen yesterday. It didn't happen the day before that. In fact, most days of my life don't have some moment that completely upends my life. And so we trick ourselves. We get used to it. We think that this is normal, that things are just going to always continue this way, that we have some sort of, uh, of way to force an outcome, that I am in control. I am the reason why this hasn't happened. We get used to things just going along normally, and yet that's not what our lives are like. We are missed. It's here today, gone tomorrow. I, I certainly think there's times that we, we get this a little bit more. When we're at a funeral, when we're Googling our symptoms on WebMD, when that car turns in front of us thinking that they can make the turn when clearly they can't, we recognize the fragility of life in these moments, but we don't often live in a way that recalls this truth, that we are in less control than we realize, than we acknowledge, that our arrogance is just that, that we don't have any sort of say in when or where or how or what we will do that all of us in this room are one phone call away from our lives ending up completely different as we get news about ourselves, about someone that we care about, about something that we cared about. All of us are one phone call away while we're sitting here of our lives looking completely different tomorrow. But we don't realize this. This is why Christians of old uh, would use this uh, Latin phrase, uh, Deo Valenti, uh, which essentially means God willing. And, and when I say that they use this phrase, I mean they used it all the time. You can find like personal letters between two people. It's like, hey, I hope to see you someday. But uh, then to remind themselves that they have no control over their lives, they would put DV at the end uh, as a, a way to say like, hey, I hope to, to hang out at some point, this super casual time, but you know, Lord willing, I don't know what's gonna happen, my life is missed, and, and they would just stick this at the end of every sentence to remind themselves of this truth, to fight against their arrogance. And doesn't that just sound exhausting? That every time we make a plan, we have to take, uh, attack DV on the end of it? Think of how annoying church announcements would be. 
It's like, hey, uh, we, we have this uh, event going on next weekend called uh, the 6-8 Project, where we get to uh, try to live in a way that reminds ourselves that God seeks mercy and justice and humility. And so a couple different ways that we get to do that, you could hear about that more next week. There's also the food drive that's part of it. You can go to the lobby and find out more information about how you can uh, give to that food drive. Uh, of course, you know, Deo Valenti. Uh, in, in July, on the 4th, we, we're going to have this outreach event where we want to reach our neighbors and, and get this really easy opportunity for them to come on this campus. There's food, there's games, uh, there, there's an easy way to see all the fireworks from our lawn. So as you're coming up with your own plans for the 4th, uh, think about being here with us. N not a lot put on you, just a way to be surrounded by people, have conversations, just plan on, uh, if you can, your 4th being here. But of course, uh, DV. Also in July, we have Kids Week, uh, which is an opportunity for us to point our kids to Jesus. Uh, we want this to be a really big deal. And for that to happen, we need you. So think of, uh, of ways that you can be part of this. Go and talk to Dakota afterwards to see how you can be at Kids Week, God willing, of course. We got a lot coming up, so we need to think of how we can shoehorn an announcement section in the middle of a sermon. Uh, Dale Valenti. This is obviously not what we should be doing. I, I don't mean the 6-8 project or the 4th of July or Kids Week. You should be doing those, obviously, get involved. Uh, but adding DV onto things, that, that's clearly not what James is telling us to do. Because the point of the passage is not planning is bad. Like, oh, I really want to take a vacation this summer, but if I buy a plane ticket, then that's forcing uh, a plan that's being arrogant. So if God's going to get me to France, he's going to get me to France. Like, no, that's obviously not what's going on. Plan things, be a steward. But there's a, a difference between using what God has given us for his glory, recognizing that he has given us, and, and coming up with plans that completely cut him out. The thinking that I have control over a situation. The thinking that I can force an outcome. And we might miss that because the sentence that's given here is in James, it, it sounds pretty soft, right? I have an intention of going to this town, of doing trade and making profit. That doesn't sound that bad. But we need to remember the world that this is in. This is a world that's defined by poverty that most of the people are, are living just barely able to meet their needs. And so to say, going from that to, well, obviously I can go to this town, obviously I could start doing trade, and obviously I will make a profit. Do we start to hear the arrogance in that situation? To try to modernize it, uh, I, I liked uh, five ways that uh, a couple commentators said of, of what this passage might mean for, for us, how we might be arrogant in this modern era uh, in the same way that James was talking about it for back then. So what does arrogance look like in this way? What, how can we avoid uh, doing the same thing with our lives? So uh, these commentators said that... Um, for these five practices that we would fall into the trap of arrogance when we're envisioning retirement as a time merely to enjoy the fruit of our labor. That if I just work really, really hard now, then I just, at 50 or 55 or 60, 65, uh, I just get to do nothing, just get to kick back. That's what life is like. That, that's arrogance, that we can even get to that place, but that God, uh, to believe that God has called us to just have a life that's full of leisure. That's, that's arrogance. Seeing work as a way just to make the money that we need to buy what we want. As if God doesn't give us everything that we have, as if God hasn't called us to more than just amassing things for ourselves. 
viewing material prosperity as a symbol of our independence. I am a self-made man. I got me to this point. Imagining God as aloof from mundane cares as money matters and making financial decisions without consulting Christ for detailed guidance. Do, Do we hear the difference here? Planning, not bad. Planning in a way where I think I have some sort of control planning where I think I can force an outcome to happen, planning where I think that I have absolute say of what goes on in my life, well, that's arrogance. That's not coming before this God in humility. So we have those two ways of uh, speaking. There's, There's the first where it's this one of being arrogant towards our life, but instead, James says, we ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. So how do we know if the Lord wills? We said it's, it's more than just uh, saying that we're going to have a plan and then tacking DV onto it. How, how do we know if what we're doing is, is actually what God wills for us to do? Again, remember the context here. The context is arrogant. So if we're coming to a decision and we're trying to figure out, is this what the Lord wills for my life or is this me feeding into my arrogance and we recognize it's the latter, we probably have our answer of whether or not that's God's will or not. The, the context is arrogant. Are we trying to assume control? But in those times when it doesn't seem like that, that's the case, when we're trying to figure out what does God want for me to do, well, how do we respond? Got about 30 seconds to describe the complexity of God's will for us, so you, it, I think we could be able to handle it uh, by the end of those 30 seconds, right? So how do we discern God's will? Well, the first thing that I would have is, is check counsel. God has put people into our life. God, God has given us people who love him alongside of us. And, and if we don't have people, uh, get in a life group, get in a Bible study, happy to help with those connection points. You have people sitting next to you now that, that are loving Jesus and trying to follow him. So check counsel. Find people who love Jesus, who will speak honestly to you and, and give you a proper assessment. Is this what God might be calling me to in, in getting other people's feedback on it? Uh, check God's word. Does God's word clearly speak against this area, this decision, this thing that I might be interested in doing? Now, I fully recognize very rarely are the two decisions that we're stuck between uh, something that is clearly spoken against in God's word and something clearly spoken for in God's word. Which is God's will for me, to be a drug dealer or to be a missionary in China? could go either way. It's, it's, it's not often that type of drastic decision. But as we are following what God has clearly told us in his word, it draws us closer to him, closer to his heart, his purposes, and that helps us in the times when it's not so clear what God is calling us to. But we check God's word to see, is God's word clearly speaking against this area that I might be pulled towards? So check counsel, check God's word, and then ch- check our heart. This is that passage, that arrogance piece. Am I trying to control this? Am I trying to force an outcome? Do I think that I have some sort of say in everything that will happen in my life? And this could be subtle. This could be something that we don't fully realize it. That, that even we might convince ourselves that this is trying to follow God's, the God's plan, but it's, it's that arrogance piece that's lingering back on it. God, if you made me this famous preacher, think of all the people who would hear your gospel from my massive stage with my massive paycheck. You know, all for your glory, of course. But we need to check our hearts. Is there some other reason why I might want this outcome? 
So how do we know what God's will is for us? Well, we check counsel, we check God's word, we check our hearts. And all the while, as we are making a, a decision, as we are stepping into something, it's recognizing like, God, this might not be the right one, so please redirect me to where you would have me. It, it's going open-handed to, I think this is what you're calling me to, but if I'm wrong, please redirect me to something else. That's as simple and as complex as discovering what God's word, or God's will is for us in 30 seconds. Now, I get that it could still be tough, we might be stuck between two decisions and we're, we're trying to go through those things to figure out what does God want for me to do? We, we ask friends, families, those around us and they're evenly split 50-50 on some are saying do this one, some are saying do this one. We've checked God's, God's word and, and nothing is spoken against these two decisions. In fact, God's word champions these things. We ought to be doing these things. So I, I still don't know what to do. We, we've looked at our heart. It doesn't seem like arrogance is feeding into it. It doesn't seem like I'm doing this for some ulterior motive or, or trying to control situations. So, so which one do I pick? One of them. But what if I, I pick something that's not in God's will? Then he will get you back to God's will. What if I make a mistake? You probably will. But God is still loving. God is still gracious. God still fixes broken things including broken us. Because here's the beauty of the passage, and I want to end with this. James has had a lot of name-calling. He's called us adulterers, sinners, double-minded, and now he's calling us arrogant. But all of this is not because James just loves yelling at other people, but it's because he's reminding us of the fact that God is, is so good so loving, so gracious, and we try to convince ourselves that we are content by choosing these lesser things, things that we can produce, things that we can grasp, wrap our hands around, feel like we're in control, and yet they lead us away from him. They lead us in a worse pla to a worse place. They, they leave us feeling unsatisfied and unfulfilled rather than this God who gives us everything. So we can be arrogant with the lives of others, thinking that we can judge people from some standard uh, that we fall short of, that's arbitrary, that's based off of our feelings, that is, we don't know the full picture, and so we're demonstrating our arrogance. All the while, we make poor judges. But the beauty of the passage is that there is a judge. There is one judge and lawgiver so while all of us crave this world to be restored, all of us crave hope and peace and, uh, on earth and goodwill to men, all the stuff that we talked about at Christmas, all of us want those things, and yet we find ourselves unable to bring them. We keep trying to get them, but we keep slipping from our fingers. The beauty of this passage is that there is a judge who will bring mercy and justice and punishment for wrongdoing and right all wrongs, and that is the one true God. That is the beauty of the passage. We make poor judges, and yet there is a judge who will make all things right. We can be arrogant with our lives, thinking that we're in control, that if I just do this, it will force this outcome. This will be a certainty. I, 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 have, I have a way to make my life go exactly as I want to, and yet we realize that things are so out of our control that all of us in here, one phone call can completely upend our lives. The beauty of the passage is that there is a God who wills so much for us. 
that every good and perfect gift, everything that we have, every, every person in our life has been given to us from this God who has willed that to be the case. That we are uncertain, what do we do? What am I supposed to do? We have a God who's given us guidance and instructions, that he is with us, that he will uh, bring his will to be about that's good and for our joy, and that while we are figuring out that we have so little that's in our control, we have a God who is in control of all things, and he gives us hope and peace and joy. That is the beauty of this. So while we might be arrogant, while we might get these names called of us, the beauty of the passage is we have a God who is controlling all these things, who is bringing it about, who is bringing us into relationship with him, where the name that he calls us is son, daughter. That's the name that we get called when we turn to him. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful for your instruction that we could fall into the trap of thinking that we have the ability to judge and assess all, and yet we make poor judges. That we can fall into the trap of thinking that we have any sort of say, any sort of control over these lives that we have, and yet there's so much chaos and randomness outside of us. Help us to turn to you the God who has reigns on chaos, the God who has control of all things, the God who has made all, who controls all, who is restoring all. Let us turn to you, you who are the one true judge who is able to bring what we wish to see into this world to fruition. Let us turn to you, you who are the God who's in control, who knows the full situation, knows what's best for us, even more so than we do. Let us find our guidance and instruction and identity and wholeness in you. So it's to you and you alone we pray. Amen.